In this episode of A Cultural History of Satan, we continue to look at some of the predecessors before the emergence of Satan clearly within Judean literature, and we're going to look at Zoroastrianism extensively. Last time we were starting to introduce what we can expand on right now, because you've done some readings on it now. We were looking at the predecessors of Satan, looking at where Satan came from, culturally speaking. Now remember that our very first evidence for the notion of a fallen angel who has a will opposed to God in some way is around 200 BCE. Before 200 BCE, we have no written evidence of that idea existing, of a fallen angel with a will opposed to God. Right? So it's around 200 BCE we first see evidence that some Judeans, some Jews, have that notion of personified evil in that respect. Fallen angel with a will opposed to God in some way. Now, anything before 200 BCE that we have is not that figure of a fallen angel with a will opposed to God. Anything from before 200 BCE that we're looking at are what I'm calling in this course predecessors of Satan. Predecessors of evil personified. In other words, we're investigating cultural evidence for ideas that later either directly or indirectly, more often indirectly than directly, played a role in the later development, after 200 BCE, of Satan. So do we have that clear in terms of the chronology of how things are working? And so, so far, we're not even getting, we aren't even to Satan yet in this course. We're all with the, with the predecessors, and that continues today that we won't get to Satan at all except for the predecessors. So last week what we did is we looked at to the ancient Near East, namely Mesopotamia uh, and Ugarit and Canaan, uh, Canaan, the area that eventually the Israelites come into, and saw a mythological sort of pattern there, didn't we? What did I label, what scholars have labeled that uh, pattern? Combat myth is the favorite term scholars have. It's about uh, a god who, a chaotic sort of threat to the whole order of the society of the gods by one of the gods. Sometimes you can call that a chaos monster, a chaos god, but the point is it's a god among the other gods that is doing something that's throwing everything into chaos. And then a young god steps up, doesn't, doesn't it, in each of the mythological patterns. The, there's a lot of gods that could potentially save the day who can't, and then a young up-and-coming god saves the day and is made king of the gods. So that was the pattern we briefly talked about last week. Another predecessor beyond those chaos monsters, another predecessor of Satan is Angramayu or Araman within Zoroastrianism. Let me explain a little bit about Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster was a prophet or a priest within the traditional Iranian religion, the traditional Persian religion. We don't know when he lived is the problem. Our sources that are ancient claimed he, claim he lived, some of them do, including Plutarch that you read, in 6200 BCE. You can never trust these sorts of dates. So Plutarch says that he lived so many thousand years before the Trojan War, which is something in rough estimate around 6,200 BC. There's other evidence that points to two separate dates 
for Zoroaster. And obviously dates matter when you're trying to answer the issue of could this have influenced how Judeans conceived of Satan? Well, you've got to know when these things came from. When did Zoroaster live? When did the sources about Zoroaster come from? And therefore, we're aware of the problems before we go on to this issue of the predecessors within Zoroastrianism. Scholars suggest that he either lived in the 12th century BCE, so the 1100s BCE, or the 500s BCE. Tradition of Zoroastrians themselves, the tradition they have passed down, and there's some still Zoroastrians practicing today, very few, but some. In the Middle Ages, they already had the tradition that Zoroaster lived in the 500s BCE. However, most scholars that are experts in the writings about Zoroastrianism, based on the sort of society they see reflected in the writings, the sort of pastoral society, raising of cattle and, and sheep society that they see, often suggests that this is the more likely date, 1100s BCE. But we, we don't know for sure. The next problem is maybe even more of an issue. Zoroastrian literature is our most direct source to Zoroastrian thought, to what Zoroaster may have thought. The problem is, all of the sources don't come from 1100 BCE, they don't come from 500 BCE, they come from 500 CE or later. Almost 2,000 years, if Zoroaster lived in 1100 BCE, almost 2,000 years later is when we first get written sources that we're working with as scholars. That's major problems, isn't it? How do we know which things go back and which things don't? How do we know when we're getting what Zoroaster thought? And how do we know when we're getting what every subsequent Zoroastrian thought about it and changed and added and all that type of thing, right? So we're, we're in a problem. So we have to begin by saying that's the problem and then go to the question of, nonetheless, what do we see in Zoroastrianism that's significant for understanding the story of Satan? And just take it with a grain of salt knowing that problem. So one of our sources that you read for today is not a Zoroastrian source, and this is actually helpful because it actually comes from earlier than all our Zoroastrian sources. It's an external guy, Plutarch, who's a Greek, living in about 120 CE, writing about something about Zoroastrianism. So this is actually our earliest evidence, is a way of putting it, for Zoroastrianism from 120 CE. Within the source, he refers to another Greek author, Theopompus, who we know is dated approximately 400 BCE. So if this is a reliable, a Greek reliably talking about another culture, and then depending on another Greek who is reliably talking about another culture, the Zoroastrians, then we may be getting a picture of what Zoroastrianism was like as early as 400 BCE. We're getting early. So let's start with that one before we go to the actual Zoroastrian literature. So Plutarch's Isis and Osiris. Uh, Isis and Osiris are Egyptian gods, and Plutarch's in this document doing an allegorical interpretation of what these gods mean to philosophy. In the process, he goes on a tangent here and talks about other cultures. He does a little bit of ethnography. He describes other people's culture. And so that's what you've read here, a little segment where he's talking about Zoroaster's supposed teachings. And this is where you have this whole thing that Zoroaster lived 5,000 years before the time of the Trojan War. 
totally unreliable, right? So we're dealing with a source, we can't take it you know, as straight, can we? But nonetheless, let's look at what it has in it. What do you see, what would you say is the essence of Plutarch's summary of what Zoroastrianism is about? How would you summarize it? So there's this dualism here, isn't there? So one of the gods is called Arimanius, which is just another way of saying uh, Angramainu. And then what's the other figure? So Angramainu is what, the good guy or the bad guy? The bad guy. And then what's the name of the other opposing force? Ahura Mazda, which is Lord Wisdom. So Ahura Mazda, Lord Wisdom, and Angramainu. What do these two principles represent? How is it expressed? Darkness and light. Best purpose and the lie. It's starting to sound moral there, isn't it? It's starting to sound more like a moral thing as opposed to two gods with different opinions or one god threatening chaos and another god setting back order. It's sounding more moral, isn't it, in respect to what makes one light and one what makes one darkness. What else about it did you notice that is about these two principles and the way Plutarch talks about it? What about the created world around us? It comes into this story that Plutarch explains about the mythology of Zoroaster. How do living things relate to these two principles that are at war with one another? So even nature around us falls into one of the two camps. Take a look at the end of that first paragraph in your, in your material there where you have, in fact, they believe that some of the plants belong to the good God and others to the evil demon. So also the animals, they think that dogs, fowls, and hedgehogs, for example, belong to the good God, but that water rats belong to the evil one. This whole idea of nature around us being part of this ongoing confrontation between light and dark, between Ahura Mazda, light, and Angra Mainu, darkness. Evil and good in a moral sense, isn't it? that you're starting to see here. What we didn't see in any of the combat myth in ancient Mesopotamia is the idea that the chaotic god is necessarily evil in some moral sense, right? But that's what we do have in Zoroastrianism. And this goes back at least to 120 CE, this idea of how Zoroastrianism was, and potentially back to 400 BCE, based on the source that's later cited within, within this. Look at how it's expressed at the beginning of the next paragraph. Ahura Mazda, or Amadzas is the other way of saying Ahura Mazda, born from the purest light, and Angramainu, Aramainius, born from the darkness, are constantly at war with each other. There's the combat myth. It's a constant war between these two figures. There's a sense in which you can almost say that, potentially this goes back to Zoroaster himself, potentially, but at least goes back quite early, that within Zoroastrianism at a quite early stage, there were two opposing forces at war with one another. That Zoroastrianism was the combat myth writ large. It was that little re repeated cycle we saw in some Mesopotamian myths, here and there, that was somewhat important, repeating itself, but wasn't the center of what Mesopotamian religion was about, is now the center of what Zoroastrian religion is about. It's about the combat between two opposing forces. Here, there's the morally charged notion within it. And Ahura Mazda created six gods 
the first of good thought, the second of truth. It lists all the gods he created. But I'm remind you, created rivals, as it were, equal to these in number. So it's a battle with each of the two forces creating more gods to fight the other. Look further down here, where it shows you that this battle doesn't go on forever. But those created by Angramanyu, I'm halfway through that second paragraph, who were equal in number to the others, pierced through the egg and made their way inside. Hence, so the Angramanyu managed to infiltrate Ahura Mazda's creation so that our creation around us in their mindset is infiltrated by the evil power of darkness, of, uh, of anger mining. But look what it says next. This is key. But a destined time shall come when it is decreed that anger you, engaged in bringing on pestilence and famine, shall by these be utterly annihilated and shall disappear. And then shall the earth become a level plain, and there shall be one manner of life and one form of government for a blessed people who shall all speak one tongue. Theopompus, this is the figure of Greek, author from, fourth, uh, from the 5th century BC. Theopompus says that, according to the sages, one god is to overpower and the other to be overpowered, each in turn for the space of 3,000 years. And afterward, for another 3,000 years, they shall fight. So a 3,000-year fight in which Angermanyu has the upper hand, a 3,000-year fight in which Ahura Mazda has the upper hand, etc., until Ahura Mazda, there will be a destined time when Ahura Mazda wins and utterly annihilates the forces of darkness. The way Plutarch puts it, he's putting it in Greek terms, Hades shall pass away. Hades being representative of the, of the ground beneath your feet, which is also representative of death. Then shall the people be happy, and neither shall they need to have food, nor shall they cast any shadow. And the God who has contrived to bring about these things shall then have quiet and shall repose for a time. So what's, this is our earliest evidence for Zoroastrianism chronologically. At least the, the, the most secure earliest evidence for it. So Zoroastrianism has that same framework. Zoroastrianism may be the earliest example of apocalypticism, chronologically speaking. The question, though, is how did it play a role in Judean apocalypticism and therefore in the development of Satan? That's hard to answer the details of because back to this whole issue of dating. We don't know if Zoroaster was around for 600 or 700 years before Judeans started talking like this, or whether Zoroaster was contemporary with the beginnings of when Judeans were starting to talk like this, but didn't yet have the full apocalyptic worldview. That's when the Judeans are in exile, isn't it? I told you, did I tell you the dates of exile last time? Did I talk about, yeah, I did. I told you about Babylonians coming in, taking Jerusalem, destroying the temple, 586 BCE taking away the upper classes, the scribes, to Babylonia, closer to Zoroaster, let's put it, uh, in the 500s BC. But most likely there's some relationship culturally between these two ways of expressing what God's going to do and this idea of dualism as fundamental to the worldview, that there's a force of good fighting a force of evil 
and that there's going to be an end to that and the obliteration of evil is at the heart of apocalyptic worldview and Satan is the main character in it besides God within the Judean formation of it later on. We're now earlier probably. Now that we've talked about maybe our earliest evidence in Plutarch, we can turn to the reading you had within the Zoroastrian literature. These Zoroastrian writings are from maybe as late as the 600s or 700s CE. 500 years after Plutarch was writing, at least a thousand years after Zoroaster lived, potentially 2,000 years after Zoroaster lived. So this is what we're looking at with this Gatha, with this hymn, Yasna 30. Now, the scholars who study Zoroastrian literature do emphasize that the Gathas are the most likely place, the hymns is what the Gathas are, are the most likely place that you're going to find something that may go back to Zoroaster himself, more so than in the rest of the Zoroastrian literature. So Zoroastrian scholars would say to you that you might be seeing something Zoroastrian himself taught in some of these hymns. So that's why I picked it as a place to look. Also picked a hymn that shows you that Plutarch's not entirely making up what some other culture says and does, right? It turns out this hymn sounds an awful lot like what Plutarch says the Zoroastrians think. And it's here presented as Zoroaster getting a revelation or having a dialogue with Ahura Mazda, this hymn. Zoroaster praising Ahura Mazda for, for the things he's done. Let's take a look at this one. So what do we have in this Gatha versus uh, Yasna 30? Look at verse 3 there. And those who act well have chosen rightly between these two, not so the evildoers. So humans take sides in this battle. And when these two spirits first came together, they created life and not life. And how at the end, worst existence shall be for the wicked, but the house of best purpose for the just man. Of these two spirits, the wicked one chose achieving the worst things, the most holy spirit, who is clad in heart of stone, chose right. And so do those who shall satisfy Lord Mazda, Ahura Mazda, continually with rightful acts. This is re-expressing in an actual Zoroastrian literature what we learn that Plutarch is accurately describing about Zoroastrian culture. We couldn't necessarily assume Plutarch was right. But it seems that Plutarch did understand Zoroastrianism at least in regard to the dualism of two forces at war with one another and the idea of nature, including humanity, taking sides in that battle between the good and the evil, between the light and the darkness. Here it's the morality is expelled out even more fully, isn't it, in the hymn. That there are evildoers, humans who do evil, and that there are those who do right. And that their humanity is divided into two camps. Ultimately, as you study more Zoroastrianism, the late literature, you start to see that they have an idea of judgment in the end times. That the, that the war will end between good and evil. That there will be a resurrection of the dead. And that there will be judgment dividing up humanity between the ones that are on the side of Ahura Mazda and the ones on the side of Angramanyu. And that those on the side of Angramanyu, the darkness, will be destroyed with Angramanyu. And that a blissful kingdom will be set up. 
So the scenario we saw in Plutarch is there in the Zoroastrian literature later on. And it's the same sort of pattern we have in Judean apocalypticism. Difficult to know which elements went, went which way because of that late date of the Zoroastrian literature. But hopefully, from what we've talked about, you've at least now got a sense that Zoroastrianism provides the best example of a predecessor for Satan. We have morality here, we don't, don't we? We have good and evil, not just two gods at war with one another in chaos and order, but moral evil and moral good at war with one another, with humanity being in, on one side or the other. The combat myth wasn't about humanity at all. Or you don't have humanity's moral choice in the matter having anything to do with those myths. Here it is. It's all about humanity making a choice. The thing begins with that. Look verse 2. Hear with your ears the best things. Reflect with clear purpose each man for himself on the two choices for decision. The moral message of Zoroastrianism is about humans deciding to take sides in the battle. Being on the side of good or being on the side of evil. And living out their life in a way that helps the good side win the battle against the bad side. And so that's the essence of Zoroastrianism in a way. But the issue of who got what from who and which elements are, what, what sort of interplay between cultures went on is difficult because of the dates.